Well, we'll be in Mark chapter 7 pretty quickly, but let's start with our notes. I want to actually look at the, the title of our sermon today. It says, I believe God speaks through the Bible. Help me listen more carefully. And if we took a survey, I think it would be 100% yes if I said, does God speak through the Bible? Uh, there's no doubt about it, and, and we'd all be sincere, we'd all be honest, we would all say, yes, God speaks through the Bible. But where it comes into play a little bit is how closely am I listening? How, how much do I pay attention to the details? A am I asking the right questions? Am, am I really making sure I hear what's being said in Scripture, or am I just taking someone else's word for it? Or am I just cherry-picking a couple passages that say what I want them to say so I can do what I want to do? How am I approaching Scripture? Am I taking it as the sovereign, inspired Word of God that is inerrant and is correct in every way and should speak to my heart and mind and, and, and be the final authority in my life? Or, or am I just using it as a reference when it works for me? So here's the big idea today. Sometimes we allow tradition, and tradition is the way we've always done it, opinion, which is the way I think it should be done, and preference, which is what I want, my desire, uh, the way that works best for me. Sometimes we allow tradition, opinion, and preference to shape our faith before we examine God's Word to see what it has to say. That's the big idea. Sometimes we let that happen. And, of course, the point today is going to be don't let that happen. Don't, don't let God's Word be your support material. Let it be the original material. So we have to talk about tradition, opinion, and, and, and preferences. And that's where we're going to start in Mark chapter 7, verse 1 through 8. I want to read this to you. We're going to read a lot of Scripture. We're not going to explain the Scriptures a lot in that... What's the story mean? What's the application? But we're going to pull some, some details and some principles out, and we're going to apply it to this. So think about um, traditions as we read this. This is the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. You see, the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they had given their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? instead of eating their food with defiled hands. He, Jesus, replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. That's a description of the traditions. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. You, let me read that last one again. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law and other groups as well, not just them, had, had made all these rules up to serve a purpose in their own heart. And these rules 
one day along the way became more important than what God said. So the rules that they made up, the human rules and traditions, became more important than God's word. And the point I want to make from that in your notes, traditions can be a distraction from God's actual commands. And we have to be careful about that. Human beings, we are a traditional group of people. We celebrate Christmas the same way every year. Oftentimes for decades. We might do the same for Thanksgiving. We have a way that we've always done church, which can, if, if it becomes a mindset, can become a problem. But we need to not allow the way it's always been done to be the superior point in an argument. So traditions can be a distraction. Now, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, it's just one verse. I'm not going to go to it. You can look it up on your own sometime. But it says, Paul commended them for strictly holding to the traditions he gave them. And so Paul now is commending someone for holding on to traditions. And the point I want to make here is that traditions can also be a very good thing if handled correctly. So traditions in and of themselves aren't bad, and traditions in and of themselves aren't good. They're, they're really just traditions. What we do with them makes them good or bad, can even make them spiritual or evil. So what's the conclusion? If traditions align with God's word, they are good. Otherwise, beware. I'm not even saying they're bad. There's a lot of things the Bible doesn't speak to, and we can build a, a very good tradition around some of these things, and it can be a very good thing, but we have to be aware. We should know. This is a choice I'm making because God hasn't spoken on this, and I'm going to continually evaluate, is my choice in alignment with God's character? Is it in alignment with the wisdom he calls me to? Does it match the other principles of Scripture that I can apply here? So I need to beware. So traditions can be a problem. And, and we're going to talk about problem, problematic traditions. And, and, and I don't know why God does these things. I often wonder why God makes me teach certain topics and not others. I don't know why he puts things on my heart. Why on the, the very first of the year uh, are we going to talk about problematic traditions, things that could be issues? Why are we going to talk about things that could get me in hot water? I don't know. God's in charge. My wife just sighed and went, oh, great. This is the life of a pastor. I made a commitment a long time ago that when the Word of God brings up something that needs to be talked about, we talk about it. I don't hold back, and I don't change it. And, and so God put this on my heart. This has been in, in the works for a while. And, and these are the things that, that God gave me today. And we're going to start off with a, an odd tradition. This tradition goes both ways. There are some traditions that say tobacco, alcohol, and gambling are all against the rules for Christians. In other words, never, ever speak of, go near, talk about, participate in, never, ever, ever. And, and, and in some churches, they're on a list, the, the, you know, the nasty seven or the, the dirty twelve or whatever, things we don't do. Some come with certain things we don't do on certain days of the week. Um, these are the hot topics. They come up all the time, over and over again. And some say never, 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 and some say no restrictions at all. And, and so a lot of times our arguments are in the extreme. We, we're on, on the, the edges of the issue, and I don't think that's where we need to live on the edges. So we have two traditions. Both 
are, are merited in good intent, both have a certain amount of, of biblical precedent backing them, okay, but both are problematic. You can't have two things that disagree with each other and call them both biblical unless God is the one who did it. We can have predestination and free will, not, not explainable, because God did that. But we can't assign God, we can't say, oh, God says this when he also says that. So here's a better way. Rather than going to the extremes, here's a better way. Each of these issues, each of these topics, and, and we could have made a list of eight or nine topics there. Each of these must be managed with biblical and godly wisdom. We have to apply wisdom. Wisdom is taking the knowledge and information I have and applying it correctly to the, to the situation or the question I have. I'm going to ask the question, does God say anything directly about this? Does God say anything indirectly about this? Are there principles in other areas on other topics that I can bring in to gain clarity? And I'm going to look for that wisdom. Now here's where some of you may get excited and not like me. I'm not going to solve these problems for you. I'm going to leave them hanging there. I'm going to give you just enough information to get started. And then I'm going to let you go to the Word of God to do what I'm really trying to teach you today. To listen to the Word of God very carefully and, and apply it to your life. So here's a little bit of wisdom that we can apply to these topics and, and probably a dozen more. Number one, moderation is always favorable to excess. Moderation is always favorable to excess. Now, just to show you that we can take these to many topics, uh, when it comes to eating, moderation is always favorable to excess. When it comes to exercise, moderation is favorable to excess. When it comes to work, when it comes to play, when it comes to politics, almost any topic, moderation is usually favorable to excess. You can play too much. You can work too much. You can exercise too much. You can eat too much. You can, you can do too much of anything. Moderation is a staple of wisdom. It, it, it's always in the conversation. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom usually involves moderation. So there's something we can apply to some of these topics. The next one in your notes, uh, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's 1 Timothy 6.10. I, I wrote that very carefully to make sure I was in alignment with Scripture. You can look it up. It says the love of money. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That means that if you love money more than people, it's going to cause problems. If you love money more than God, it's going to cause problems. If you love money more than your family, it's going to cause problems. But did you know that if you love food more than people, that's going to cause problems? If, if you love exercise more than people, it's going to cause problems. If you love work more than people, it's going to cause problems. If you love play more than people, it's going to cause problems. If you love politics more than people, it's going to cause problems. It doesn't matter what topic we put in there. The wisdom flows. So the principle is that if you love something more than people, it's going to be a problem. If you love something more than God... It's going to be a problem in 1 Timothy 6.10. The specific example given is, is the love of money. Let's go to the third one. We are to honor God with our bodies. Now, the context of this particular passage, 1 Corinthians 6.9, is about sexual sin. 
And it, and it says, avoid sexual sin because you're not only sinning against God, you're sinning against your own body. And the principle here is, is that not only do you get the normal consequences of sin with any sin, but with sexual sin, you have personal and physical consequences as well. You know, we somehow think we don't know this or don't understand it, but sexual sin comes with greater consequences than other sin. It always has and it always will. That's a principle that we need to honor our bodies. Well, we can put a lot of different things in there, and we need to ask the question, whatever topic we're talking about, whether it's tobacco, alcohol, gambling, eating, exercise, work, uh, plays, hobbies, politics, whatever it is, am I adding to my trouble because of this? Am I, am I damaging something that God holds valuable? It could be my reputation, it could be my body, it could be all, all kinds of different things. So when we're talking about controversial subjects, and I just named three to get your mind rolling, wisdom is the key, and, and three keys to wisdom is moderation, not to put anything before God, and to make sure we're honoring God physically and, and mentally and emotionally with our bodies. So these things can be traditions that distract us from God's commands. Because we know what we want, but have we gone to see exactly what God says? So those can be traditions that distract us. We're going to move right on to number two. If you raise your kids in church, they will love and serve God when they are adults. Uh, you probably all have heard this at some point in time. Many of you were told this at some point in time. Some of you banked on it at some point in time. And all of us have examples where it didn't work out. We get this from Proverbs 22.6. This says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And there was a long-lasting tradition, hopefully it's dead now, there was a long-lasting tradition that if I bring my kids to church on Sunday... They will grow up to love the Lord. That's all I have to do. Uh, that's just it. And there may have been a day when that was true because generally the world espoused Christian values and, and morals. And, and the neighborhood would help raise your kids in the direction you wanted them to go. But it's become painfully obvious in the not-so-distant past that that's not true anymore. You can't just bring your kids to church and then double down by taking them to one as a youth group and think it's all going to work out okay. So what is the better wisdom of Scripture? Well, I've given you three here. Um, we're not going to turn to Deuteronomy. You can look at both those passages. They're somewhat familiar. They basically say, uh, talk about the, the principles of God, talk about the commands of God when you sit and when you walk and when you lie down and when you get up talk about doing life. The principle here, the wisdom here is while you're living life, as you're living life, talk to your kids about God, about his character, about his principles, about his desires, about salvation. While you're driving in the car, during that long trip to, to, to Longview or Seattle or Portland, while we're all going on vacation, while we're sitting at the kitchen table, before we watch TV, while we watch TV, talk to your kids. Make it an everyday part of conversation that we're a Christian family, and, and we're going we're to discuss these things, and it's going to be a part of who we are. It's our family DNA. That's a, that's a better approach. Then bring them to church. I'm never going to say don't bring your kids to church. 
I'm never going to say that. James 4.4, which I do want to read to you, James 4.4 says, you adulterous people. Now, whenever God calls a group of people adulterous, they've messed up. They're not, they're not doing well. That's a, that's a bad thing to be called, okay, by God. It says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, or not friendship, with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Anyone who chooses. I want to highlight there that we have a choice. Every single person must choose for themselves. Am I going to follow God, or am I going to follow the world? Am I going to listen to what God's telling me and believe this is the path I want to be on? Or am I going to listen to the world and believe that they know better than God? Everybody has to make that choice. Joshua 24, 15 is another famous passage. Joshua is addressing the people and he says, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. The God of our forefathers who did all these great things, or the gods of the people whose land we inhabit. Choose today. These people should have not had a choice. It should have been obvious. But many of them chose incorrectly. These are the people that saw the, the, the Jordan River separate, saw Jericho's walls come down, learned a good lesson in Ai, had seen the conquering hand of God as, as they, they took possession of the land. Yet, some of them chose incorrectly. Our job is to give our kids every opportunity to understand who God is, to understand what he's all about, to understand scripture, to put them in relationship with other Christians, to have them in church, but also to understand that it is up to them, and, and we need to point them in that direction, but we can't make the decision for them. So this is a situation where a tradition can cause us to handle things incorrectly. It was probably meant for good, but we, promises are not found in Proverbs. Proverbs are not promises. So there's, there's another one. Number three, being equally yoked means marrying someone who says they're a Christian. And I chose that word very carefully, says they're a Christian. I don't know how many times I've talked to someone, teenager and adult, who's either who's in a new relationship or they're engaged or, or getting married, and I'll ask the question, are they a Christian? Because if you're a Christian, and I'm not going to ask this if you're not a Christian, but if you're a Christian, there's a principle of being equally yoked, which means that you marry another Christian. And a lot of times the answer I get is, I asked them, and they said they were. Can you handle the problem? They said they were. So your entire decision on whether they are a believer is based on their word. Either you don't know them well enough, to know whether they are by their lifestyle, by, the, by the, how, they, how they worship, the church they go to, or any of that kind of stuff. You don't know them long enough, or they're not giving you anything to see. Are they walking with God? Do they have a prayer life? Do they attend church? Do they read their Bible? Can you discuss spiritual things with them? These are the things that indicate they're a Christian, which are much more powerful than them saying, yes, I'm a Christian. And a lot of times when the follow-up is, well, how do you know this? Well, they, they used to go to church. Or, Where do they go to church? Well, they don't go right now, but they used to. Uh, do they read the Bible? Well, we're going to get Bibles together. Uh, questions like this. 
And, and what I want to hear is, this is what my prayer life is like. This is what my worship is like. This is how I see God. This is how he answers prayer. I want to see the fruit. But so many people just take that as, oh, they said they're Christians, so I've, I can check that box. I'm good to go. And then they go farther and they go, well, that's just marriage. So I don't need to worry about that in my dating life. I don't need to worry about that in my friendship life. I don't need to worry about that with my hobbies and my lifestyle. And I don't need to worry about that in business. All God's concerned about is who I marry. Well, I want to read this one to you as well. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. 14 through 16. Let's just listen to this. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and, and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Then it goes on from there. Did you hear anybody mention marriage in there? That's not the context. It is a context. It is, it is an application of the correct context, but it's not the context. The context is in your relationships, don't get too close with unbelievers. Don't go into business with them because you will have different business practices. Don't be best friends with them. Don't be companions with them because they will pursue different things than you do and eventually one of you will have to change your path. Because when you are yoked, you go together. You go the same direction and you go together. You might be bind, bound by a contract in a business situation, bound by pressure in a friendship situation, in a dating relationship, you're moving in the direction towards marriage and if you're not going to marry someone who's not equally yoked with you, who shares your faith and your belief and your standards and your morals, why would you date them? Why would you be great friends with them? A friendship in that nature should be leading towards their salvation. Yes, it applies to marriage. should not marry someone who does not believe the same way you do and does not exercise their faith in similar ways than you, that you do. You don't want to be the only one in your family going to church. You don't want to be missing church because no one wants to go with you. You don't want to be arguing about what the kids are going to believe and, and how they're going to be trained when it's time to raise your kids. So yes, marriage is an application, but there are so many more. And we get all hung up on the tradition that unequally yoked only means marriage, that we miss everything else. To be yoked means to move together as one, to attach yourself to someone else. The context, the last blank there in the first page is check out the context. The context is all relationships that you voluntarily enter into. You don't get to choose who, you're, who sits next to you at school, usually, or who's in the next cubicle at work, or who walks into your business. You don't get to choose a lot of that stuff, but when you do have a choice, being, being equally yoked is a big deal. But traditions have... have tainted that. Now we'll turn the page over. Maybe we'll get a little bit more delicate because we're going to start talking about ourselves for sure. 
Here's some more delicate and possibly more damaging traditions. Number one, only Christians can participate in communion. And non-Christians need to be warned that it, that, so that they are not punished by God. And, and this, is, this is a very old tradition, and I'm positive that if you've been in church for very long, you've heard it. That, that the, the, the line in the sand for communion is saved people take communion, unsaved people don't. And unsaved people shouldn't because that's why they get sick and that's why they die and we don't want any of our friends who are not saved to get sick and die. You don't look at me like I'm crazy. You've heard it. Right? And we'll have this line drawn in the sand and then we feel good about ourselves because as Christians we always take communion and, and we look around and, and kind of check on others to see if they're doing it right. Then we have to ask the question, what about our kids? When, when can they? When can't they? This kind of stuff. We have all these questions. Let's look at the passage. 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11, 17 through 30. It says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. So someone's going to get scolded. All right? And, and just for context, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He's writing to the people who attend church in Corinth. And you didn't go to church in that day, in that era, unless you were a believer. So he's writing to believers in church in Corinth. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings, your gatherings, do more harm than good. In the first place, I learned that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So he's saying, yeah, there's going to be some differences. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. You're bringing dinner to the dinner. Like, we're gathering for communion. We call it the Lord's Supper, and you decide to bring your dinner along. And so you're bringing dinner to the Lord's Supper. You're not here to celebrate the Lord's Supper. You're here for a meal. And apparently they're not sharing the meal. They're just sitting down and eating. It says, as a result, one person remains hungry, and another gets drunk. So some people don't have anything. Some people are indulging. It says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Like, shouldn't you be doing that at home? This is where we do communion. Or, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. See, you guys are wrong. You're dead wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're messing the whole thing up. Here's the correct way. He says, for I, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's the key word, in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is a cup of my new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And here's where, here's where it gets dicey. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Who are we talking to? Christians. Where are we talking to them? In church. So who is being warned about taking the, the cup and the drink in an unworthy manner? Christians. Christians are being warned. 
He's saying, you people in the church, don't take it in an unworthy manner. Everyone ought to examine themselves. The people in the church ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, what does discerning mean? To think about, to contemplate, to understand, to remember. Okay? Discern, discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Who's being judged? People that are not taking it seriously. People that are taking it as an opportunity to have a big meal with their family and friends. They're taking it as an opportunity to drink too much. Taking it where they're not looking at their neighbors, not caring about who else is there. They're really just fine seeing someone else have nothing and wait for them to finish their meal. We're not focusing on Christ, we're focusing on ourselves. And it says, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is a nice way of saying died. Who's getting sick? And who's dying? Christians who are not taking the Lord's Supper seriously. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. We and ourselves... Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined. Another factor, God disciplines those who belong to him, okay? He punishes or judges those who don't belong to him. So look at your notes. Here's the issues. Making a mockery of the Lord's Supper, making it a social event, practicing favoritism and selfishness, practicing gluttony and drunkenness. Those are the issues that are brought up. Here's the warning. Two people in the church, professing Christians, the warning is two people in the church. Two, start focusing on God, not yourselves. Number three, do as commanded, not as you see fit. And number four, start loving your neighbor as yourself. So we have the issues, we have the warning. We can easily figure out what we're supposed to do to correct the situation. What is it for non-Christians? They're not even mentioned. Not even not even by context. They're not mentioned at all. Matter of fact, if there's a non-Christian in the room and they see this happening, they're going to receive a testimony. They're going to hear someone say, this is the bread which represents the body of Christ which was broken on the cross so that we can have forgiveness of sins. Let's take it together. And they're going to go, wow, a piece of bread represents a body and it was Jesus' body and what, he died on the cross? They're hearing the gospel. And then someone says, and this is the juice which represents his blood. And they might say, the, the blood is required for the sacrifice. And we, we have to remember that Jesus' blood was shed for us so that we could be forgiven. Let's take the juice together. And then we're, we're proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaiming that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We're, we're also declaring our, our allegiance to that. We're remembering. We're contemplating. Okay, we're discerning. And we might help someone else discern it. The tradition is that there is a magic line between saved and unsaved. The actual teaching of Scripture is that there's a big line for the saved people to consider. Are you taking it in a worthy way? Are you honoring Christ in your taking of this communion? Number two, the other one that, that comes up a lot, believe it or not comes up a lot. There's two sides to this one as well. It comes in, in two forms. 
both on the extremes, which is your first clue that probably neither one of them are correct. So A, only men can serve in the important roles within a church. Only men can serve in the important roles in the church. And then B, the other side, since men and women are equal in God's eyes, there are no limitations. No limitations. And this is to, to what women can do, because that's always the question. So only men can serve, or there are no limitations whatsoever. And, and you, you, you live in those extremes, you produce extreme situations. Well, let's talk about each one. A, in your notes, capital A in your notes, only men can serve in important roles within the church. I want to remind you that in Judges chapter 4, Deborah was a judge. Deborah was a judge. Now this is Old Testament, and we don't take everything from the Old Testament and bring it forward. But in the Old Testament... During this time of judges, in traditional Hebrew culture, women were far less looked upon favorably than they are now. They were not allowed to speak out of turn. They were not allowed to be a witness. They were not allowed to vote. Their opinions weren't counted. And so for Deborah to be a judge, it was an act of God to put her there. This didn't happen by accident. She didn't get there on her own merit. She honored God, apparently, and God put her in this position, and she judged well. She's one of, if not the only, I didn't have time to really research it out, but she is one of, if not the only judge who did not do something stupid while they were a judge. Every one of them did really dumb things, and God had to step in and save them from them, and then they did dumb things after God stepped in and saved them. There is no record of her doing anything wrong. She spoke for God. She was honored by God. So we have way, way back in the history of Christianity, we have Deborah being a judge. Number two, several ladies traveled with Jesus. Traveled with Jesus. That's in Luke 8, 1 through 3. Names are named. I encourage you to look that up at some point. And were the first witnesses to the resurrection. Why is that a big deal? Well, they weren't allowed to testify to, to the, to the that's, why, that's why Peter and John ran to check out themselves, because women weren't trustworthy. They, their, their, their testimony couldn't be validated. That was just the culture they lived in. But Jesus gave them honor, gave them privilege, gave them a place, gave them a ministry, welcomed them into his, in his inner circle. And then honored them by letting them be the first ones to see him resurrected. That's why Jesus walked on the earth and after his resurrection. And then number three, Phoebe was a deacon. That's in Romans 16.1. There's no way around that. It says, Phoebe, the deacon. So there's no way around it. She was a deacon. And that's, that's uh, after Acts. That's after the transitionary period of time. This is where the church is active. And so we can't say that only men can serve in important roles. And notice I said important roles. I didn't identify them. To say only men can serve in important roles is wrong, biblically. Let's go to the other side of the coin, B. Since men and women are equal in God's eyes, there are no limitations. That sounds really good. And it's partially based on Scripture because it says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor male nor female, nor slave or free. And it says in God's eyes we are all the same. We are all equal. But can we apply that to this situation? Well, let's look at our notes. Number one, role assignments do not reflect inequality. How do I know this? 
because the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all God, co-equally God, yet within the Trinity perform different roles. The Holy Spirit is subject to the Father. The Son is subject to the Father. The Holy Spirit is also subject to the Son. Yet they are the same. And they are one. So the roles within the Trinity don't make one less than another. They have different roles to accomplish what they need to accomplish. And if role assignments do not reflect inequality with God, then they don't have to with us. The husband has a role. The wife has a role. Children have a role. It doesn't mean one is less important than another. They're equally valued as human beings, equally valued in the, size, in the eyes of God, but they have different roles to play. The same within the church. God gives different roles, which is number two. Roles are assigned by God who does not contradict himself. If he said in one place everyone's equal, but said in another place here's your unequal roles, he would be contradicting himself. So there is equality within the various roles, and God has assigned certain roles to certain people. The man is the head of the family. And, and we're going to look at some scriptures to talk about the various roles of men in the church. Okay, and then let's go ahead and turn there. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 18. I'll take a, a, a minute to read here. But fill in your blank. Pronouns matter. Pronouns matter. Now there's a hot sentence for today, isn't it? <laughs> Guess what? They mattered way back then. Pay attention to the pronouns. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, and, and we would intersect the word elder and pastor there. Overseer, elder, pastor, all the same thing in this context. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Verse 4, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with all outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. He, 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 him, him, he, 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 him, him, he. What does that mean? <laughs> An overseer in every conceivable way is identified as being a male, a man, which fits perfectly with how God has done it everywhere else. The elder, the pastor, the overseer, is that role is given to the men. Clearly. Now, let's look at verse 8. We're going to see a different title, the title deacon. Deacon literally means servant. It's, it's a assigned servant, so not just any old servant, but an assigned servant given a task in the church officially. The word deacon has no male or female association, which is very unusual in most languages. It is a neutral word. There is no males. You have to say male deacon or female deacon if you want to assign a gender. 
So it says, verse 8, in the same way, or very much like the elders, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be tested. And then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Why all of a sudden is it they and them and not he and him? Because it's more than he and him. It's they and them. Verse 11, in the same way, the women, and, and my, my version has a little C by there. Your number might be different, which causes me to look down and I look for that C. And it says, possible could be read two ways. Possibly deacons' wives or women who are deacons. Could it be deacons' wives? Well, it can be deacon's wife in a translation sense, but it makes no sense. Why would the lesser office have a higher standard? There's nothing mentioned about the wives of an elder and them having to live up to a standard for their husbands to be qualified. Why would there be so for deacon? And then you take into account that they and the them. So it would be correctly read in the same way the women who are deacons are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Then verse 12, a deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Verse 13, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance of, in their faith in Christ Jesus. Here, what's happening? Here's a list of stuff for all of them. Here's something specific for the women who are deacons. Here's something specific for the men who are deacons. And now we're back to everyone. So here's what deacons need to be. Here's something for the women. Here's something for the men. Because a woman can't be the husband. Right? And, and, and here's something for all of them. So we have illustrated for us right here that there is a role that's reserved for men, that's the pastor, the elder, the overseer, and there is another very important role in the church that's open for everyone who is assigned the, the, the duty and who meets certain standards, men and women. All right? So in the conclusion, it says a role of elder is a position assigned to men. It doesn't make them better and it doesn't make anyone worse who's not assigned. A man who's not assigned is not unequal in God's eyes to a man who is assigned. Okay, the role of elder or pastor or overseer is a position. Okay, deacon is a position to be held by both men and women. Okay? Now here's, here's something you've got to understand. Number three, the modern meaning of deacon does not match the biblical meaning. So I need to clarify in my conversation when we're talking about church if I'm using the biblical definition or the modern definition. Biblical definition is someone who is assigned an official job in the church, who's qualified to lead in the church, to oversee others. A deacon has that, that's a position. Not elder, but appointed to serve and oversee. They have a certain level of responsibility. Today, deacon is much more associated with an elder. Okay? It's not an elder, but much closer to elder. In the Baptist tradition, sometimes the two words are synonymous. We have a board of deacons. Okay? You might ask the question, 
why don't we have any women on the deacon board if you just said that men and women could be deacons? That is a good question. One day I'll answer it for you. Just kidding. <laughs> the answer to the question is because our deacons and our pastor overlap so much in our activity and our responsibility that you cannot separate them enough to have deacons only doing deacon things and the pastor or elder only doing pastor elder things. If one day we had many elders, we might have a separate group of deacons. Our deacons also fill in for your pastor by preaching and teaching when I am not available. They have responsibilities. They are substitute elders, if you will, on occasion. And so they have to be able to step into that role. And so we avoid confusion and we avoid some difficulties by saying in our church, only men will serve as deacons. Now, we could create another category if we wanted to, but we have to realize words change. The word translated deacon here has a different meaning than the word deacon you're going to read in your dictionary today. And it would cause more confusion to try to change how everyone else sees the word deacon and us have our own definition. So we have this terminology. The point is, don't lose the point. We read the Bible. We read what it says. There are some positions that are only held by men. There are many important positions that are held by anyone who's qualified. Okay? In, in the biblical situation, the deacons started off by making sure the widows got food. Okay? That was a very important and necessary position. They also taught sometimes. They also led. Eventually, they were doing lots of different things in the churches. I introduced some traditions. I told you some of the problems. I at least pointed you in a direction to find resolution. The point of the sermon today is to say this. When you're following a tradition, make sure it's biblical. Make sure it's what God has said. Make sure you understand the context, the ins and outs, all the things that determine what our decision should be, and then listen to Scripture. Don't just assume that what I was told when I was a kid is correct. Don't assume that my neighbor, who's usually always right, is correct today. Don't assume that the guy up front is always right. Check it out in the Bible. Listen to what it says. Hear what it says. So I believe that God speaks through the Bible. I believe he speaks through the Bible much more than he speaks through my neighbor, much more than he speaks through my feelings, much more than he speaks through my dreams or anything else. I believe God speaks through the Bible. So my, my request then is, help me listen more carefully. Help me listen more carefully. That's our prayer today. That's how we're going to end the sermon. We're going to pray together the opening line. I, be, I believe God speaks through the Bible. Help me listen more carefully, and then I'm going to close this in prayer. So all together, let's do this. Ready? I believe God speaks through the Bible. Help me listen more carefully. So, Father God, what I want to ask today is that you allow the Holy Spirit to guide our thinking as maybe we have to wrestle with one of these topics. Maybe a, a topic has been unresolved that used to be resolved. And maybe we need to apply wisdom to another area of life. Maybe we need to rethink something that we thought was 
was done. And Father, I pray that we would go to Scripture, that the sources we use to give us information would be also going to Scripture so that we could check them out to see if they're correct. That we would read the passages and look for those pronouns. That we would consider the context and the principles and to see how they apply. You don't give us black and white answers for, for many, many things in our life, but the principles you do give us usually cover the topics. So I ask that with the Holy Spirit you help us illuminate Scripture in our minds so that we can see and hear what you want us to see and hear. And may we, even though maybe a little bit confused today, maybe a little bit disoriented, help us to just think about you and your word and your scriptures. May you bless us today as we go on with our first day of the new year. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.